Welcome back to Tara Burden uh, on Meditations with Zohar. She's my first repeat guest. Uh, last time, over a year ago, we were discussing her first book, Strange Rights. And now I think of her newest book, Self Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, such an incredible title, as a kind of sequel. Uh, I'm excited to have you back, Tara. She's a brilliant mind. It's very kind. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be back myself. Let me ask you a question that is dear to my heart, which concerns the artist Albrecht Dürer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He made self-portraits, which is super modern, but he also made his portraits in the image of God, of Jesus, which is kind of antiquated in some ways. I know you you begin the book by talking about Equinox's ad um, that we're all gods. So perhaps it's it's still familiar to us, but I think of it as neither modern nor pre-modern because it still has a religiosity to it. It still ultimately points back to Jesus, whereas modernity seems more unhinged in the self-worship. Like you can do a self-portrait, but you're not necessarily bounded by tradition. So the way that I'm thinking about this question is, is Durer a heretic? Is he, is he a deviant from theology or is he a traditionalist? And like still within the horizon of some kind of devotion to a God who is outside of ourselves. And if he is the latter, or to the extent that he is the latter, then like, how do we jump from a self-centeredness that's still within a theological horizon to a self-centeredness that abandons it altogether? Super easy question. Um, so my answer to this is twofold, uh, which is to say I want to talk both about something specific that Durer is doing in, let's say, his 1501 self-portrait, the most famous one where he is depicted most sort of explicitly as Jesus, and um, Renaissance ideas of self-making as a whole. Um, I do not want to call Durer a heretic at all. Uh, I make no uh, claims to his theological state. I will say that I see in that portrait the imagery of the the artist self as Jesus, as not being, uh, or as being the beginning of an avenue towards self-divinization in modern thought that goes beyond what I think of as the best of the Renaissance humanist tradition, which is a recognition of something that's actually quite orthodox uh, in, in Christian thought, which is the, the self and the image and likeness of God. Um, and the question I think of what does it mean to be in the image and likeness of God, sort of, but not to be a God, is is at the root of a a lot of Christian discourse, but b the question of modernity itself. Like I see modernity, um, if there is a story, it is um, if there is a meta narrative, uh, the meta narrative that I ascribe to it is the question of self divinization. Which is to say, um, Durer's image of himself in this portrait, uh, he's not just um, worthy of regard 
in his own right. He's not just uh, a creature of God. He is not just the son of God. He is the kingly Jesus. This isn't true in how he depicts himself facing the viewer. It's true in how he depicts his raised fingers, which which do recall the kind of traditional iconographic postures of, of Christ. It's there in the the Anno Domini slash Arbector, the AD in the portrait. There really is a playfulness that is a statement that I, the artist, am a kind of God. Now, I think that, and this is this is actually, I'm so glad to talk about this. There's two ways of exploring this question seriously. Um, one is the question, like, I think there's a way of saying this, the story of modernity is just a story of self-divinization such that any kind of recognition of that which is unique and irreducible and special and maybe even creatively powerful about the self is itself heretical, is some kind of falling away from what the way things are supposed to be. Um, I don't think that. I also don't think even within a Orthodox Christian uh, perspective that is um, that is necessary or or true, but I think that somewhere around the Renaissance, say we get this sort of ex this vital exploration of this question: What is the role of human creativity, human freedom, human genius in a wider theology of the world and creation that gives us this particular place where creation is a thing that we do? that makes us part of who we are to uh, what I think of as the quintessentially modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, phenomenon, which is we are, our freedom extends to the freedom to kind of determine our own purpose, to adjudicate on moral questions. So we are not free within a universe that has transcendent values. We are the creators of our own values and meaning. And that, I think, is the point that um, I would uh, distinguish the two. Now, that is not to say that nobody in the Renaissance uh, had this latter view. The the more, quote unquote, postmodern view, to use a, a probably an anachronistic term, the humanist and indeed somewhat controversial uh, uh, accused heretic, Pico della Mirandola, in his uh, sort of rewriting of Genesis, says that God kind of basically uses up his certain elements of, of seeds and purpose when making the rest of the universe. And by the time he makes human beings, uh, they don't have this, this seed. They don't have this tendency, this, this telos that they're striving towards. What makes them human is, he says, thou mayest fashion thyself. You may determine your own purpose. Um, and I, I think that that uh, Pico de la Mirandola's version has become dominant in the modern question of self-making. But that it is precisely, there is a difference between the power of human creativity, even the divine and divinely sourced power of human creativity, and a sense that self-expression involves a kind of unique and irreducible self that can be expressed, and the idea that there is nothing outside what we will it to be. And that is a distinction I want to draw, critiquing one while leaving space for the other. So how do we protect against the slippage uh, from the self as divinely inspired to the self as God? How do we maintain the distinction between the self as created in the divine image and the self as simply divine? 
and get, you know, given that history has kind of gone towards secular modernity, isn't there a slippery slope argument to be made from like the neo-reactionary or, you know, almost paleo-reactionary point of view of like, don't indulge this um, creativity too much because it does culminate in the kind of religion of Kardashian. So I guess I'm wary that there was ever a, a time where we got it right, so to speak. Um, so to think about history as a slippery slope, I think implies that um, kind of we're, we're talking about a direction of falling away. And I, I think that one of the most valuable things to come out of, uh, though by no means exclusively associated with you might what you might call the modern or the liberal tradition, is a kind of political recognition of the irreducibility and the irreproducibility and the dignity of the human individual, that there is something to the personal self that cannot be reduced to biographical facts or circumstance, and that this is uh, vital to what it means to be human, which is to say, and I don't think it's exclusive to the, or to the liberal tradition, and I do, uh, I mean, as a Christian, I do see uh, this as a distinctly Christian, uh, and or let's say, sorry, I actually want to rephrase that. I see this as a deeply biblical commitment uh, in, in both the Jewish and Christian traditions, more specifically in terms of my own grounding in it. That said, I think what we're seeing is not that there was some era where we kind of got it right and we've fallen away from that, but in the pursuit of one part of the story, culturally speaking, combined with a broader and perhaps connected sense uh, that there is no, no such thing as transcendent reality. Um, we kind of need a reassessment or a working through of what a theology of the, of the self that is not purely the creator of the universe looks like. And I don't even know if, uh, if we can get that societally anymore or whether that's just something that is obsolete. But I think that it's correct. Or I think rather that in the absence of belief in transcendent values in good and evil in things that are true and real outside of ourselves and our perceptions uh, morally and indeed spiritually speaking, um, it is very difficult to conclude anything but that we are indeed the creators of our own universe and that this is all a kind of power game where the strongest and most uh, willful among us can triumph. I suppose there's there's one way to reconcile the two views, which is that God designed the universe in such a way that it would trend towards autonomy. So not that we have rebelled by rejecting transcendent values in the Nietzschean story, but that God has in fact granted us the power to choose our own values and to cancel these transcendental norms. I think that there is a distinction between seeing human freedom, including human moral freedom, within the light of something that is true or within a wider order, and the kind of assumption that there, there is no order, 
other than what we ascribe to it. Let me try to restate it. So in Kabbalah, we have this idea of the tzimtzum, the retraction of God as part of the creative process. And within Jewish intellectual history, there's a debate between mystics and rationalists as to whether this tzimtzum, this retraction of God from the world, the uh, deus obscenditis, the, uh, the allowed absence of God is real or perceived. And so the mystics think that it is merely perceived and that in fact, God remains in the world. Whereas the rationalists um, think that God is in fact absent. And so um, I, I believe one could formulate the rationalist approach in a way that comes very close to the nihilistic one. I'm not saying that it is nihilistic because there's definitely some fine print. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, there's no way to interact with God. Like prayer is for the sake, let's say, of cultivating virtue. It's not to get divine intercession. Um, God gives us the Torah to study, but ultimately the decision about how to apply those values is left with the sages. It is There's not going to be a, a God who comes down and tells you whether you're right or wrong. And um, in in place of divine truth, what you get is kind of the dignity of debate, which I suppose the 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 one guardrail from it becoming Kardashianized is simply that it's the power is still concentrated in a kind of um, like a spiritual aristocracy, um, and so um, since the rules of engagement are sufficiently difficult, it's it would be hard to enter the conversation unless you've sort of demonstrated certain discipline to get a seat at the table. Um, but otherwise it is kind of anarchic. I'm curious about the absence of God or the perceived absence of God as a kind of theological horizon where how do you, the question of how to wrestle it with certain kinds of freedom, certain kinds of uncertainty can be formulated in a variety of ways. Um, and I, 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 I've always, I'm, the idea of the withdrawing of God is one that I, I find actually quite deeply moving. It's, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a big reader of Simone Weil, for whom that's a huge uh, element of her theology. And yet I'm curious how a kind of modern world uh, resting on that theological understanding of the relationship between human and freedom and withdrawal might look di different or function diff differently in terms of metaphysical assumption than um, the world we have now. Yeah, I think practically there may be a difference um, in that if you posit that God has withdrawn, there's still some kind of longing to bring God back or to intimate God through a kind of devotion to the absence as opposed to a more static postmodern view where there's no movement whatsoever. There's no longing, no nostalgia, right? There's, you, don't, you don't even miss God because there's no presumption of that sort of withdrawal. Right. Or, or I think even perhaps more, more troublingly than that, the hunger for, for God can be coded in this kind of like psychological term as like hunger for daddy telling you what to do or this way that kind of um, longings for the transcendent can be coded in the sort of post enlightenment way as childishness or 
uh, a kind of Freudian parental story. And I, I see this, I mean, I think we're, we're kind of past the days of like new atheists laughing about Sky Daddy. I feel like that's a very early 2000s meme. But I do think that there is something so distinct in like, you know, the enlightenment image of the child who cuts the leading strings and becomes a man to um, kind of to this this present sense of, well, if you want if, whatever you're hungering for, it's either this kind of individualistic sense of meaning where you're taking your like meaning medicine or in order to have a, a psychologically balanced worldview or you're hungering for external authority because you're inherently a weak person that cannot stand uh, up to the future of being of the existentialist decision that you must make uh, as a human being to choose yourself. And um, perhaps I'm being a bit too negative here, but I, I, I see both of these, these fundamentally psychological stories about self-reliance and choice as being the primary cultural ways that longing for the divine is coded, particularly in these kind of secular contexts. And I often find um, that the kind of reactionary version backlash to this tends to be a hunger for like hierarchy for the sake of hierarchy or a sense that like there is something to which we fit ourselves without necessarily a sense of what that the content about something or do you, or do you think I'm being too um, too unfair here? Well, I, I was definitely laughing because it's hilarious. But um, like, I, I do agree with the point that sort of once the opposition takes a stand, you you tend to take the opposite stand regardless of the first uh, the first level of the disagreement. So if 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 Richard Dawkins is anti sky sky daddy, then I must assert my authenticity by being pro sky daddy, as opposed to you know questioning the assumption of whether that is the correct theological model in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that one of the really interesting things about the kind of the story of self-making, but also is that it's it's also a story about like what is reality, what is real, what is true, and I think that the kind of what what our self-makers come down to is this realization, explicit or implicit, depending on the figure, that reality is just perception, that like the field of human creativity is to shape things is just fundamentally what you can make people believe. And nature and the material world become kind of like desiccated husks that you can move and play with in order to kind of attain that the power that you want to have, which is about, which is purely perceptual or purely relational in certain ways. And I think that there's versions of that that are like more explicitly Nietzschean. There are versions of that that are more kind of left postmodern coded, but fundamentally there is a sense that like reality as something that is out there against which things can be measured. Like, is this metaphysical statement true? Kind of break down. Um, so, you know, this is a, a book about the creation of the self uh, on what makes a self. But I think that ultimately is also a, a book about the question of what is reality. The reason why I like your book, I mean, I like it on many levels. Obviously, the historical and genealogical dimension is super fascinating because we tend to just think about what was on the Twitter feed yesterday. And taking the longer view on the history of the self is just 
you know, you, you see the continuity and it's like quite humbling. But I think a lot of these modern and postmodern ideas I like, maybe I don't like them in, you know, the same level of dosage as your like, you know, your teenager who hopes to be a TikTok influencer, but like they've certainly seeped in. So I'm as guilty as, as the next person of like vibing, so to say, with this self-made concept. Um, even as I identify as a religious person and, you know, do to your point, like aspire to harmonize my approach to life with something beyond myself. Um, and so I think it's a challenging book because like I'm, I see parts of myself and the entrepreneur uh, archetype or the dandy archetype or, you know, when you're talking about Frederick Douglass and it's like the power of hard work and discipline, it's like, you know, I think like all of those things are great. Um I just maybe don't, I think the thing that rubbed me the most the wrong way was like the Marquis de Sade chapter. I'm like, no, that is definitely wrong. Um, <laughs> but, um, but other than that, I thought a lot of these moderns were onto something and like were needed corrections. So I think the, the question maybe that I'm struggling with and that perhaps you are as well is like, what is the right balance? Like at what point does it become an overcorrection rather than just you know, modernity good or bad. Yeah. Um, and I, I as, as someone who thinks modernity is partly good and partly bad, uh, Episcopalian middle of the road here, um, I think that actually Frederick Douglass is a really great example of someone for whom the self-making tradition is liberatory and yet rooted in, like, very clearly in, like, virtue ethics as a phenomenon. I think what's interesting about these kind of early American theorists of self-making compared to the later Gilded Age entrepreneurs who take on like the, self the self-made man starts to mean something very different is that ultimately this is the personal self-cultivation is directly linked to a political project of collective living together. That being able to govern yourself is part of being able to govern yourself politically. And this is something that comes up in, in the way that Douglas explores self-making is that certain kinds of discipline are seen as the cultivation of the self for a purpose and a purpose that is shared political life. Um, one of the, the kind of fun facts that came up for me about Douglas in my research is um, the way that he talks, um, and this is very counterintuitive, especially as a modern reader, about temperance and its relationship to slavery. And especially like this is someone who was born enslaved in saddle slavery and in his writings on temperance he has this image of if we could only get slave owners uh sober they would realize the kind of moral horror that is slavery and he describes the kind of moral bondage of the individual slave owner to drunkenness as a kind of moral ill that warps their sense of the good and if we could just get them sober then they would realize what they were doing and they would act differently and this is this, I think what interests me about this parallel is this conviction that, uh, in a sense, um, the kind of freedom of self-making or the freedom is not simply a freedom to choose one's own purpose, but a freedom from from external and internal moral forces that point us away from truth. That there's a kind of external good that the self-cultivating self cultivates towards. And I think that that is in Douglas um, extremely beautiful. It's extremely tied up in his vision of America as a place where regardless of your birth or your race or your class, 
you have the opportunity to live this good life, um, which is not a life of accumulation. It is importantly not the life of the Andrew Carnegie, the robber baron who has everything. It is simply a good life, uh, modest and yet um, safe and um, in a, and, and, and communal and political. And that strain, uh, particularly as we get later into the 19th and then into the 20th century, gets lost. The American self-making tradition becomes all about how much money can you make, how much can you make for yourself, and this kind of success being a measure of your moral worth in a way that no longer is rooted in a kind of vision of the world as an orderly place that has a kind of goodness for everybody. I love entrepreneurs. I love the spirit of innovation that drives entrepreneurs. I am far less interested in the, you know, rags to riches story um, that often accompanies successful entrepreneurs, but I am very much inspired by the idealism of like, there is a world that is perceived as static and you have the audacity to think that you can change it. And even though most entrepreneurs fail, some manage to succeed. Um, I would actually contrast the wealthy entrepreneur archetype with other models of wealth that seem much more the norm, such as, you know, just arbitraging, um, but moving things around, but not actually going from zero to one, not actually creating something from nothing. I guess when you think of high profile entrepreneurs, like you gave the example in the book of Thomas Edison, there is a tendency to self-deify um, and either sincerely believe it because like, wow, look at this power that I'm channeling in the case of like discovering electricity and like monetizing it, like quite literally. But um, there's also a marketing effect of like, you need a lot of people to buy into your vision and it is fraud until proven otherwise. So like you kind of need to create this mass delirium that like by virtue of faith turns it from that's a crazy idea into like, of course. And like Steve Jobs is famous for describing the most successful entrepreneurs as having the reality distortion force field, which very much fits with the thesis of your book of like, right, if, if you deny reality, um, then you can accomplish this reality distortion because there's no reality to distort. It's just whatever you want it to be. But there is a difference between like the con artist who just doesn't give a crap and is just trying to pander a certain image for self-gain and somebody who's tr almost trying to use these powers of manipulation and sophistry for the sake of something that they genuinely believe in and that has bettered the world. I, I think that that has bettered the world part is for me the distinction part, which is to say, I, I, I am not anti-innovation. Uh, I am not anti-discovery. I'm very glad uh, that we have electricity. And yet I think that there's a kind of, like, am I going to say that Thomas Edison was justified in uh, lying to the press? No, I do not think so. Um, and I, I, I think that actually this, this vision that reality is what we can make it collapses very quickly into reality is what we can convince people of in a way that I think um, is, I'm happy to say, is, is net bad for uh for us as as a culture for us as a polity um and i think that the question of 
innovation as something that is ultimately for collective good rather than for individual gain. Um, I think it's okay to draw that moral distinction, even as uh, we recognize that in practice, it is uh, your. It is easier to be an entrepreneur if you have some. Or sorry, it, people might indeed be more motivated in innovation by the promise of certain kinds of wealth. Sure, but I don't think that that. Um, I don't think that that means that we cannot draw a moral distinction um, or see see human creativity as ultimately at that ought to be ordered to an end, even as we may not be able to agree with uh, one another on what that end should be. I think the belief that there is no end at all, or that the only end of humanity is our own ability to determine our own aims, ultimately um, untethers us from any kind of public life that is not a form of power politics and perception shifting. What is the role of power politics? within the realm of those who do aspire to implement a program for the good life? Is it, is, is there no place for power politics in this aspiration? Like, or can, can a person be justified a la Augustine's meditations in the city of God, just war theory to lie and, at least bend the truth um, and play the game of the nihilists in order to appropriate that power from for one's agenda. I'm very, very wary of circumstances where this might be justifiable. I do not want to rule it out or or kind of go full Kantian and say, you know, you cannot uh, lie to the the murderers coming to your door uh, looking for the person to kill. Um, but I do think that. I think that it is very easy to tell oneself the story of one's own righteousness uh, as a nice little sort of safety valve while we play games that are as much for our own personal benefit as for the causes we claim to espouse. And I, I think that like this is actually why I'm so down on the self-making tradition that says we are who we want to be and it is our desires are in most states uh, and our psychological reality that gives us access to the truth. Precisely because I, like, as a believing Christian um, and as a person who I, I think is just, like, interested in human nature, I think anyone who reads the wealth of the world's literature is also aware of this. You do not have to be a Christian to be aware of this. People are very, very bad at knowing what they want. People are very bad at knowing why they do the things that they do. People are very, very likely to lie to themselves as much to others uh, when it comes to any kind of self-knowledge. And I think that this belief that certain people who have privileged access to their own motivations and their own uh, desires might be able to kind of circumvent the rules that the rest of us ostensibly live by because of their own uh, sort of aristocracy of the soul. In practice, I think what you just end up getting is uh, a certain kind of selfishness that has the veneer of spiritual authenticity. I believe it was Castiglione who was one of the first to give a defense of the bastard or remind me in your book, um, where does the sort of the turn towards um, 
revisionist history of the bastard come in? Uh, revisionist history of the bastard. So um, there is this idea in Renaissance thought, um, and it's it's not just like a conceptually only. It's it's more broadly uh, an imagery uh, and a rhetoric around the true parentage of the aristocrat of the spirit. By which I mean uh, there are figures who don't quite fit. Uh, in the social order, uh, the genius, the person who leapfrogs the social order being most prominent among them. Um, and the question arises in Renaissance humanistic thought, like, how do we talk about these people? How do we account for them in a God-ordered social world? And the the language that ends up being used about them um, in, in uh, Poggio Bracciolini uh, and others is this idea that they are the unmediated child of fortune. Uh, they are not always the literal bastards, but they have this kind of bastard, spiritual bastard quality where their relationship with God is unmediated and direct. God is their kind of moral father or nature is their moral mother or uh, fortune is their moral parent. Uh, often the language is a little is not very um, programmatic in this way. But the idea is whoever their social father is, that's not their real parentage. Uh, in this way, they kind of um, the, the art historian James Hall creates the analogy between like Hercules or the demigod of Greek myth being the kind of standard for how we understand these figures. These are demigods who have the special parentage. Um, and of course, the, uh, the most famous version of this in, in English uh, language literature is um, Edmund and King Lear, who who kind of takes some of this ideology and he is a kind of self-maker. He wants to, to usurp his, his legitimate brother and, and treats the bastard more explicitly in this famous stand-up for bastard soliloquy as the kind of the child of nature whose real desires and whose relationship to will is contrasted with the, the boring legitimate son who kind of comes out of the world of custom. So I, so I, I, I can see how this the the bastard concept could be misused, right? And you could it, it, there, there's a negative externality to basically saying I am not the child of my parents, I'm the child of God, and then kind of using that to self deal, so to say, and divinize oneself. But if you think about it from the point of view of the bastard, like what choice do they have? Um, they're they're they are excluded, and you know their parents are of low birth if they even know who they are, why shouldn't they? And if they're able to, like, God bless them. So I, I kind of think, like, just going back to our previous turn in the conversation, like, America was founded by bastards, not not necessarily literally, but, like, the second-born and third-born sons were the ones that came over um, precisely because they didn't have that, um, the natural aristocratic claim uh, to succession. And, like, I, and I think that the entrepreneurial culture in America, which, you know, seems to be much more dominant here than in Europe, um, you could perhaps trace to that. So like, broadly, I think the bastard is great, uh, because the bastard is what unlocks innovation and people who just assume that they're going to be the successor and inherit have no motivation to try to prove their worth. Absolutely. And this idea of parentage is something that actually you find in, in Douglas. Uh, Douglas talks about specifically, you know, in Europe, the sons of so-and-so and so-and-so uh, do not need to like earn their sonship. But the, the again, sort of metaphorical, the sons of Lincoln, the sons of Henry Clay, like we 
sonship is something that is kind of earned as legacy rather than something that is taken for granted. And I think like, depending on how we think about lineage as, as something slightly separate from, from the fam- family as something moral, um, that is roughly a good thing. Like I think that my, my problem with, and I, in so far as I have a problem with um, the, the Renaissance model is not that it um, allows for social mobility, but that it specifically excludes others from social mobility, that like it creates this kind of vision, specific vision of the um, natural aristocrat that can basically be easily used to say you count and you don't. Uh, you you are the, the demigod Hercules and you're just some peasant. And the way which um, this kind of tradition ends up being used consistently and historically is that as wherever you have a, a narrative of the self maker as a as a posited being, you have all of these ideas about what separates the self maker from the the normal person, often hand in hand, as happens. So you, and you see this particularly to go back to the American example in the Gilded Age, the sense that well, these people aren't real self-makers. And this means, you know, we we do not expand social services to the poor because they have just failed in this way. And whether it's a failure to work hard enough, which is the kind of American version of this narrative, or the simply failure to have the innate aristocracy quality, the it, the bon ton that you find in the European example, um, it the self-maker becomes a kind of reactionary figure precisely because he he and it is usually he is is the 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 exception that proves the rule he's allowed to move move and others are not and that's that's where my reservation comes that makes sense what do you think if you had to choose one to stay and one to go what do you think is the better one the european dandy or the american entrepreneur in terms of your your social critique if i had to pick one like my my natural answer is neither. My natural answer is both of these models of the aristocrat of the spirit are are, are like so deeply flawed as to be like when you take them to the extreme, wicked. That said, I think if I had to pick one, the American model with its, especially the kind of earlier American model with its sense that human possibility and human self-cultivation not grounded in uh, social status has the opportunity to allow any of us to live a good and comfortable life. Um, I think I think that that's a really, really good starting point. How we then take that next step of saying, how do we provide protections for those who, um, for whatever reason, are unable to fit the Horatio Alger narrative? Or how do we avoid creating a society that is so wedded to the notion of hard work and grit that we do not protect the vulnerable out of a conviction that they do not deserve it? You know, it is not an unmitigated support for the American model. uh, But yeah, if one had to stay, I think I'd rather Frederick Douglass than the Marquis de Sade. This is a bit of an, well, 
let me take a few steps back. When I was reading your book, because when you talked about the dandy and the entrepreneur as kind of two sides of the same coin, I was like, wow, that's awesome. Um, I My mind went immediately to the archetypes of the humanities major and the STEM major on American college campus with the humanities major being the European dandy and the STEM major, like the Mark Zuckerberg um, type being the American entrepreneur. And as a human, as somebody who spent many years reading in the humanities and I don't know how to code, um, I guess I'm a European by default. Um, so, and I suppose, you know, you, you strike me as a, as a scholarly person, uh, to say the least. Um, I don't know, I don't know your relationship to the kind of STEM and, you know, entrepreneurship. I, I know certainly writing a book is a kind of zero to one thing, but, um, it feels like in terms of where we have largely landed on our day-to-day activities, um, we believe well, I'll speak for myself. Like we believe in this long tradition that like at least spending time with it is is worth something. And to an entrepreneur uh, of, of the STEM point of view, it's like, why would you even bother with that? Just like build something and ship it. So I don't know, like it feels very un-American in some ways um, to spend so much time like reading, especially reading Europeans <laughs> uh, and kind of dandyish, like, it's a it's a form of self making. There's no other Tara Burden. There's no other Zohar Atkins. Like, what? Like we we have self made. We have turned ourselves into icons or individuals in part because we have, you know, read books and cultivated a certain taste, uh, a certain high mindedness that you're not going to find. Like I don't know if you just took a random thousand people off the street. So, I don't know. That was a bit provocative, but <laughs> if if in fact the American way is is superior, like is the lesser evil, shouldn't we be doing something more in that regard? Or if they're both bad, then like, what is the way to leverage this sort of dandyish approach to education for this third way that you're talking about? Well, I don't grant at all that uh, reading novels or reading Europeans or anything (laughs) has anything to do with the dandy at all. I mean, I think the the image of the dandy is an aesthetic self-creator whose whole kind of shtick is the idea that he is the sole author of his own selfhood. I think that one of the things that reading does well, uh, and that is, is that is a, is the fact that part of our self-making is that we are made by others. We are made by our families. We are made by our communities and we are made by the very, uh, linguistic and narrative conversations that form human society. Like this is just, we are not nonverbal beings uh, who, who run around naked in the woods. This is not, we are not natural men in the Rousseauian sense. And one of the things that reading does, on the one hand, it is a form of self-creation, I suppose. But I think more than that is an openness to being made by the kind of vast collective wisdom of the world around us. It is a kind of receptivity. It is a, indeed, I think it's a kind of defense against the tendency to self-make, to be receptive to or made by those around us in this way that is analogous to being made by those who, uh, people who exist alongside us uh, temporally. So so I, I think I don't, I'm afraid I don't grant the premise at all. Yeah, no that that that's fair. I guess um, no, I, I can definitely take the critique. I, I I perhaps is too glib, but 
um, I think about like Oscar Wilde was a literary man and like many of these artists with this, with this aesthetic taste, like I think you would say they do, they do have a knowledge of the tradition. They just treat it more as a fashion, as a kind of prop. Um, and so if I'm being super cynical, like what di differentiates the person who treats a humanities degree as a prop and the person who let's say is genuinely receptive to book learning in an effort to change themselves. Sure, but you could say the same thing about somebody who has a STEM degree and uses it as a form of marketing in order to sort of drum up financial support for their startup as part of their pitching. I mean, I don't see how anything specifically about the humanities or a humanities degree or a book being read that is that gives it a privileged, distinct position as being potentially a uh, a source of self-fashioning. It's no more, like, no more or, or no less. And certainly when you're talking about the dandies, I mean, Oscar Wilde was indeed, he was a poet, he was a writer, but Beau Brummel, who I think is the archetypical dandy in the European tradition, uh, early early 19th century English dandy, uh, was, a, was a military officer with basically, I think he was kicked out of Oxford, basically has no intellectual heft or tradition whatsoever, is best known for wearing clothes well and making witty remarks, but has absolutely no grounding in any kind of humanities tradition. Um, so I think, I think if the question is, are the people who are self-inventors who make their life as art more likely to be artists, I think we can have a conversation about the nature of doing art or creating art as something that might well be morally compromised, which I'm open to. But I think that being an artist, being a writer, being a creator in that way is the place where we should apply our critiques rather than the, the tradition of the humanities, which to me seems orthogonal to the discussion. Okay, no, that's fair. Um, I think I was probably conflating issues like, uh, what do you call it? Um, messenger and message, because I do feel that many people read largely to be able to say i read that book you know as opposed to genuinely absorbing it not not to impute that to the humanities proper but i think that is more common in the humanities than in stem in my view um in part because in stem there is like a did you get the answer did you create a thing that worked whereas i think in humanities there's far less accountability it's much harder to measure like what does genuine receptivity mean um, GPT can spit out an essay on, uh, you know, reading comprehension that is as good as, uh, most college essays. And so like with that <laughs> comes, uh, I think even more pressure on, on people to show like, what have they actually done with that reading experience? So one of the things that's different about, I don't know, the past 10 or 15 years from, the earlier parts of your book um, that you discuss these characters in is the social media phenomenon. We don't know what Albrechter's Twitter would have been, or you know, Oscar Oscar Wilde on, on Instagram, or Andrew Carnegie. Um, what you know, would he have had some millennial intern doing his TikTok or whatever? Um, but the thing that social media one of the things that social media does is it turns this stuff into ubiquitous. Like it's so banal. And then the other is like, we're always surveilling one another in a way that 
democratizes sort of democratizes the sprezzatura or um the bone mod or all of these things because you're like there are hundreds of thousands of people that are displaying this or aspiring to display it every day and maybe you know 200 years ago you got a broadcast of like the top 10 or the top 50 but it was still kind of this rarity and so if you almost just think of like tyler cowan likes to use the phrase like solve for the equilibrium but like it you know basic supply and demand. If the supply of bone maw increases, then the de- then the price decreases. And so, um, what has the co- the the commonness of this self making done to the way that we esteem or relate to self making now that it just seems like hard parcel of being young and online. So I think that at their best, something that the dandies did really well is affirm in in many cases, we're talking about the 19th century, an increasingly uh, a world of increasing mass production and reproduction, the sense that there was something distinct and indeed original about the human person. Like I think one of the things that we associate with Beau Brummel and kind is this idea of like the finely tailored suit that us an artisan is kind of measuring, that there's a kind of uh, labor and attention and irreproducibility to the persona. Now, you're, as you said, like self-making is so democratized, anyone with a smartphone, which is about 90% of Americans, uh, can do it. And yet suddenly um, the quality goes down, so to speak, or the the kind of the, indivi- the, the fact that we're all doing it in many cases as part of our expect, not for joy or authentic self-expression, if such a thing exists, but to get more Twitter followers, to get more Instagram followers, to get a book deal, to um, get a partner, if we're on a, a dating site, if we're looking for certain kinds of ways of standing out in the intention economy uh, as gig workers, that this is just like, it is like punching in our time card, self-creation. And I think that that whatever joy there might one have been in it has gone out because A, it's a necessity. Um, and B, I think that there is it there is less room or less freedom to do something artistically interesting in it because it is so bound up for so many of us with our livelihoods. Like I'm certainly never gonna tweet anything like that interesting uh, in part because I really do not want to get into some big career ending fight on Twitter. Um, which there is a sense in which like all of our social media is kind of as interesting as the average LinkedIn page. Um, Even if we are pretending to be uh, visually interesting or witty, there is a kind of, it's connected to our professional lives uh, in a way that means we're all kind of, tied into the economic systems of it. And that's not to say that, um, or let me rephrase this. I don't, I am wary of the idea of self-expression as a good, because I think that it is, can be very, very easily misused. But I do think that if there is a good there, it lies in the affirmation of our distinctness. Um, what I would say as a Christian, like we are in, made in the image of God. We are, uh, you know, distinct beings. We have souls. These are these are obviously religiously loaded words. Um, but I think that this kind of affirmation of our singularity becomes instead a, just a kind of like 
assent to certain uh, like middle class demands of self presentation. Um, it's not even fun anymore. Kierkegaard um, was a big proponent of irony, at least. Um, at least that's one way to say it. Um, he might have been a proponent, ironically. So we, we we'll, we'll never know what Kierkegaard actually thought about irony, but he did write ironically, and he was a religious person. Typically, I think of irony as a kind of clo- cousin of cynicism and disbelief and like disaffectation. Um, but clearly, that wasn't the case for Kierkegaard. Um, in which, which makes me wonder if there is a way to adopt the posture of self-making ironically and thus free oneself from the burden that you're kind of talking about where, okay, yes, like there is all this inauthenticity that comes with being performative, but that doesn't mean I can't use the form knowing that that is just kind of part of the frame uh, of modern life and doing something interesting with it. Well, exactly. And I think this is where the Oscar Wilde's uh, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth from another point of view does actually have some validity, which is, I think, the best, uh, whether we're talking about David Bowie um, or we're talking about, I don't know, Lady Gaga, I think the best practitioners of self-invention often will use it in a limited way to shed light on things that are perhaps arbitrary or rooted in, to use a kind of enlightenment word, custom, as a means of pointing at the things that are true. Um, That kind of we can explore what is true precisely by calling attention to ways in which life, including like human social life, requires forms of artifice. Um, The question of what are those true things is, I think, the, the question where we need to adjudicate better. Um, I think that the contemporary answer is often those truth things are our desires, our wants. Um, I don't accept that we have to reduce the one to the other. Uh, And therefore, I think I'm very in favor of the use of irony as a means towards truth. But I think that um, not all affirmations of what might be true are correct. So Grimes, uh, Elon Musk's ex, um, is someone who I think of as a quite histrionic self-maker. But one of the things that is interesting um, stylistically about her content is the signaling or gesturing at merging with the machine, like I guess this is a phenomenon of sort of trying to dress up as video game characters or like almost like identifying as, as an AI or whatever that even means. Um, I think she was one of the first to publicly or certainly prominently say that like um, anyone using AI should feel free to use her voice and mix it in however way they want, as opposed to most artists who are like, no, it's mine. Like, like that's my intellectual property. Um what do you think about Grimes's sort of specific specific style on the machine aspect? Is that continuous with the dandy or is there something else going on in this trend towards like a dysphoria and being human? Uh, I know there's a cousin point as well, quite disturbing. I try not to even look, but like I've sort of like um, 
people who are identifying as like the animal as well. I see that as like on a spectrum of like, it's a renunciation of the human. Is that self-making or is that something else? As a pop star, uh, one of the things that like the, the genre of pop star can do post Bowie is explore self-presentation as a means of, of kind of personal truth. Like this is like one of the things that like the pop star even distinct from, I don't know, the opera singer or the country music singer does. And in that case, I think what Grimes' public persona does really interestingly is, um, and I and she's not in my book, and I kind of wish she were, um, is the, the recognition that the kind of transhumanist turn, the idea that we can kind of, in the modern technologically saturated world, transcend human limitations uh, in order to experience a new realm of humanity and the kind of dandiest vision that the truest, uh, most aristocratic of the soul people, the, the soul's aristocrats are those who recognize and can shape their own being uh, artistically and in the perception, in the minds of others, that these things converge in Grimes's public persona, where while I don't think that these things are good, I do think that she is accurately diagnosing that these two things are really the same thing, that they are two sides of the same coin. And so I see in the public persona of Grimes, and I don't know how this relates to either her private persona or her philosophical con convictions, because I don't know her, but I do think she is accurately like diagnosing a truth about what it means to be a modern person in contemporary self-making culture. And she is correct about what it is, even as I um, am critical of her seeming optimism towards it. Um, but I would, I mean, my dream is to be on a podcast with Grimes and Caroline Calloway uh, talking through all of this, because I think that they are two of the canniest uh, self-makers on the internet right now. There's a optical illusion in a bunch of like books on, you know, bias. I think it's in Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it in a bunch of places where there's two arrows in parallel to one another. One with the arrow pointing, uh, with the arrows um, sides pointing out, and one with them pointing in. And you're asked, are the lines of the arrow the same length? And the answer is that they are, but your eyes, no matter how hard you try, no matter how rationally you know, you won't be able to see them as equal. And I'm wondering like, if you read self-made and maybe it's showing kind of the seam behind the textile, so to say, you're like, oh, so that's what Grimes is doing. But then we still, I, you still kind of fall for it. So I, I guess my question is, do you feel that a book of, social critique or genealogy allows one to overcome the system one thinking of, that Kahneman describes and be a little bit more deliberate and choosy about how you process the content or are we still at its at its mercy? So like to, to give a more specific example, like with this concept of it, um, as much as I can see that it's kind of socially constructed, I basically do believe in it. Like I just, I see certain people and I'm like, yeah, they've got it. I may, I might not be using it in the, um, the technical sense that, that you lay out, but like, I think there still is this. And even if you know that person's kind of deliberately fashioning themselves to have it, like it's, it doesn't even matter. Like it still works. Even if you know that they're, um, intending to appear effortless, you almost appreciate the effortless 
ness regardless. Well, I think a nonfiction book at its best is, uh, yes, it is, a, it is a challenge to um, think more carefully and deliberately. And, and maybe that the conclusions are the same. I don't think that everybody who reads my book has to agree with me about it. But I do think that when, when we are talking about um, authenticity or who we really are, I would love readers to take a moment and think like, what does that mean? Who we really are? On what assumption am I making? Where does the really come from? And what implicit assumptions, including metaphysical assumptions, underlie the statement that really means this? Um, and I, I think that what I try to do in all my nonfiction work is to argue that there is a kind of systematic set of metaphysical and moral assumptions about reality and the universe that underpin a lot of so-called secular modern life and the ways that we think about what parts of the self are true and real and what parts are manufactured or socially conditioned and somehow less real are themselves downstream of a relatively consistent, though not programmatic, um, theology of modernity. What options do non-theists have for living a good life um, with what what can they what theology can they grab hold of to insulate themselves from self-worship and this kind of authenticity talk this jargon of authenticity that is essentially just cover for artificiality and consumerism like dressed up as uh, as spirituality I think that there is a certain kind of existential, hopeful um, orientation of the self towards um, towards the existence of good and evil. Um, I think that I don't know exactly how how one thinks of it as a non-theist because I'm not one. But I think that there can be an existential decision made that even if I do not know the answer. Uh, even if I am not aware of the source of the answer, what is always good or what is evil in a given circumstance, that there is some kind of moral architecture of the universe that even that maybe it sort of if it doesn't exist, we have to invent it, that that the very act of of choosing this uh, and self-limiting through that choice is is necessary for. I think that I think that the sacrifice of the belief that there is something called good and something called evil, uh, or that that good and evil are only for us as humans to decide, is very, uh, can very rarely, if ever, I'm certainly dubious about it, um, be sustained without being reduced to a question of personal power over others. I'm not completely ruling it out because I'm open to being wrong here, but I certainly think that the path is much more difficult and I'm very wary of it. A lot of people are judgmental. In fact, I don't even know how helpful the term judgmental is. It just seems, of course, we we all make judgments, but then um, in vernacular, people use the phrase judgmental, I guess, to describe people whose judgments they disagree with or <laughs> are offended by. Um, and within that horizon, you often find that moralists are called judgy. Um, do you think that a certain, uh, and, and on the converse side, Hunter Rent diagnosed the modern age as one that has retreated from judgment. Do you think that we need to be more judgmental in light of your, what you're saying about good and evil? I think we need to be judgmental, but that that needs to be tempered with a kind of loving kindness towards humanity, a recognition that 
all of us fall short of uh, moral ideals and that part of being in the world and being in a foreign world, excuse me, in a fallen world is um, human imperfection and human frailty. And I think that we can make moral judgments about ideas, about actions, and still see one another as beings who are worthy of, of love. And um, maybe cliche as, as that may be, but the kind of tempering of judgment and mercy is, I think, a useful way uh, for approaching the difference between right and wrong in the abstract and the moral imperative to love the person that we see who is not a right thing or a wrong thing, but a human person before us. Is technological innovation neutral, positive or negative? I think it's neutral. From a moral point of view and a theological point. I think it's neutral. Um, I think that there are such technological innovations that improve human life. Uh, there are technological in innovations that may make you are at risk of making human life worse. But I think that it is kind of on us to figure out both, um, both which innovations are good and also how can we best respond to uh, respond to innovations such that they don't make our life worse. Like, what does it look like to have a smartphone so that you, I can like video chat with my mother who does not live in the same country as me and still resist a culture where having a smartphone means that we are all taking photographs of, one, of ourselves all the time and putting them on social media relentlessly to uh, create an image of ourselves that is uh, desperate. We are desperately clinging to. And I think that there is not an automatic solution that is banned smartphones or smartphones are great. It's, it's a matter of figuring out how we can be human and be human well with technologies that we have. Self-made felt very continuous with strange rights. What continuity or discontinuity do you see between the two books? And what will be your third? Uh, so I'm not allowed to answer uh, in detail the question of what my third is because it's not public yet. But I will say that my next book will uh, be with, about in part magic and the internet and technology. Um, but I cannot give you more specifics yet. The um, question of whether self-made and strange rights are, are contiguous, I think they are. They are part of a wider project I have, which is to explore the divinization of the self in modern life and what it means for um, a wider internet-saturated culture to be, I believe, fundamentally guided by the metaphysical principle that it is up to us to choose our own purpose in this life. And book three will kind of be about that too. How should a person go about finding their purpose if it isn't by listening to Jordan Peterson or um, Gwyneth Paltrow? I think uh, a broad pursuit of wisdom uh, within both the tradition of wisdom more broadly and in friendship and community and interpersonal um, conversation and in personal private discernment, uh, prayer or not, which is to say, I think the discernment of a purpose and the decision of a purpose are very different. One is uh, a discovery of something that is true 
uh, about ourselves that it, we may in part or whole learn. One is uh, of the positing of a choice that we can decide this based on what we want. And I think that these might cosmetically seem a little bit similar. The, the path of finding oneself uh, is, is a kind of implies that there is a self to be found. But ultimately, I think, um, I think that the kind of action of being in community and allowing ourselves to be shaped by the worlds that we are in, rather than attempting to impose our perceived selfhood upon the world, is part of the process of the discernment of purpose. This is perhaps an unfair question, but um, as somebody who loves the internet, um, sociologically and anthropologically, what is your take on trad influencers? Specifically, the medium that you describe as a kind of self-divination and the content, the purported content um, being like a come return to quote unquote traditional living, communitarianism, whatever it is, even, even if it's a bit of a, uh, you know, Instagram filter, but like, it seems like there's some dissonance between the, the form and the content. And so I'm curious how you relate to that content. Um, I think it's a little bit silly. Uh, I really, I think that like any other form of lifestyle influencing, um, it involves an aestheticization of the self. Uh, and I think that like the best people, something that a lot of these people can do is actually spend time with their spouses and children and families and kind of commit to that and come back in 10 or 20 years or whenever their children are grown and, and reassess. Because I think the difficulty of like lifestyle influencing is that a lifestyle is not something that you just perform. It's something you commit to. And part of committing is the exclusion of other possibilities, which is something that we do in life in a way that the internet makes it easier not to do, which is to say, you know, we can, I can be a like, have one ideology and one vision of my lifestyle today and another one tomorrow. And I can post a picture that will um, signal this aesthetic change, but the actual uh, living out of one's life in community and with family, which I think are generally good things, um, can only be accessed and understood by the actual living of those things, which demands time and attention. Like the time horizon of like being a trad started being cool. And I don't know, 2019 and suddenly like, this is a lifestyle thing. Like the, even if you got married in 2019, like that is not exactly a time horizon over which to attain any form of wisdom. So yeah, I think we should all just post less. Mm. Get offline, touch grass. And then in terms of, in terms of the commitment point. So I generally agree that commitment is a beautiful thing and a rare thing in our culture. How would you transmute the power of commitment to a generation that doesn't necessarily have great role models for it? I think that, like, how would I transmit the value meaning what exactly? <laughs> I don't know. Like, like, I don't know, we want, we want a world in which there's more commitment, right? In which people see the, the importance of it. So what's the theory of change for getting, for getting others to, to, to see that? I think living out one's own commitments as well as possible, being open about both those challenges and the fundamental good thereof, and um, encouraging, including through my own work, uh, I hope, a sense that 
who we really are is not the sort of static emotional thing, but rooted in the actual way that we live. Um, I was recently, I was just this past weekend at um, the Plow Writers Weekend, which took place, uh, is hosted by the magazine is affiliated with the, the Bruderhof, which is an Anabaptist uh, Christian community where members take vow- vows of, of poverty and of, of, of chastity and whose lives are kind of marked by the vows that they have taken to live in this particular uh, religious way. And while I am not myself a member, I think I was really struck and many of us were struck in having conversations and being on panels with members of the Bruderhof as well as other writers, um, just the way in which uh, living one's life in accordance with a faith and, and a commitment to moral ideals that are not dependent on inter- intermittent emotional states can be is often a very good and beautiful thing. And I don't know, you know, I, I can't like create the social media marketing campaign for, for commitment. Uh, I don't even know what that would look like. But I think that um, the only way to, to do it is to live it. Great answer. Um, beautiful note to, to end on. Thank you so much for your commitment to, to this work. Commitment to commitment. Um, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.